。罗马书八章三十一、三十二节，神的爱。既是这样，还有什么说的呢？神若帮助我们，谁能抵挡我们呢？神既不爱惜自己的儿子，为我们众人舍了。岂不也把万物和他一同白白的赐给我们了吗？赐给我们吗 ？Question: What is the best news that you have ever received? Think about that with me for a moment.、Uh, maybe when it, when you were a teen, it was、uh, when you heard、uh, that your classmates. In high school or, or middle school, had voted you into a job that you really, really wanted, and you felt affirmed.、Uh, maybe during those years, it was when you discovered that a boy or a girl that you really liked、uh, liked you back.、Uh, as you got older, maybe some of the best news that you ever received was when you received a letter explaining that you had been accepted into a university that you really wanted to attend and had, had worked hard to、uh, to get into. A few years later,、uh, maybe it's when you heard that you were given a job that you had worked for and、uh, studied for for a long time, or it might have been when you heard those magic uh, words, uh, "Will you marry me?" Or on the flip side, yeah, I want to spend my life、uh, with you. Good news, of course, is thrilling to us.、Uh, it produces within us a profound sense of satisfaction,、uh, of joy, and、uh, of optimism about our future. Well, if you don't already know,、uh, you'll be happy to discover that the Primary word that the New Testament uses to describe its teaching is simply "good news."、Uh, the Greek word "euangelion"、uh, occurs no less than seventy-seven times in the New Testament, and the New Testament actually is not that very long; it's not all that long a document. But the word simply, the Greek word "euangelion," the, the New Testament was written in Greek, of course. It simply means news that produces gladness in the hearts and minds of those who hear and receive、uh, the news.、Uh, Jesus used this word to describe his teaching. The Apostle Paul used it to describe his. Number of modern English translations of the Bible use the ancient English word "gospel." Uh, to translate this Greek word, and I think it's a little bit unfortunate.、Um, we don't speak English the way they did a thousand years ago. Of course, the languages evolve and move and change and progress, and the English word、uh, "gospel" isn't clear to a great many people. So when they hear that word, it seems obscure. But remember this: whenever you hear the word "gospel" in a biblical or church context, It's simply an ancient English word、uh, that means good news. This morning, I'd like to begin with you a seven-week study、uh, that we're calling. So, what's so good about the good news?、Uh, 
There are at least seven insights in the New Testament that together are in the composite described as the euangelion, the good news. I'd like to take a few minutes each week of these seven weeks and explore with you these seven insights. Because if we can grasp them clearly, if we haven't already, and we can internalize them, they are, without a doubt, life-changing. Uh, they provide us a framework, a, a, a paradigm for living, for our understanding ourselves, for understanding God and his relationship uh, with us, for understanding our purpose in living, for understanding a power to change in areas of needed change in ways that we may not have known before. But these are uh, the, some of the seven richest insights and most important uh, insights of the New Testament. Uh, we discover insight number one in Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus. Uh, as many of you know, uh, in the first century, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was the author of a significant part of the New Testament, uh, made three trips through southwestern Europe and uh, he was teaching and starting new churches. Uh, on his third trip, he traveled to the city of Ep- Ephesus, and we have a map for you. Unfortunately, the lights um, make it a little bit difficult to see. Um, Ephesus is was on the, in, in fact, the ruins are because of some terrain changes. It's not quite on the coast of Turkey, but at that time, it was on the uh, western coast of what is now uh, Turkey. It was a major city in the Roman Empire. There were three or four principal cities in the Roman Empire at the time. One, of course, was Rome. Another was Athens. Another one was Corinth. And another one was uh, Ephesus. Uh, The reason it was so uh, strategic and important at the time was because it was a port city and there was lots of commerce and goods moving in and out of the city. It was also a provincial uh, capital of this area that the Romans called Asia Minor. And uh, there was a population that was estimated at about a half a million. So that's no small city, particularly in this period of time. Uh, The Roman Empire at this time was a very pagan, polytheistic culture. Of course, we know it was pagan. We can go to Rome and look at the Colosseum and people, thousands, tens of thousands of people would gather to watch men fight to the death. Uh, It was a very rough, harsh, uh, in some ways, uncivilized uh, culture and a very polytheistic. People worshipped a range of different kinds of gods. Of course, on the earth today, there are four or five principal predominant religions, but there was this whole range of of gods that people uh, tended to believe in at the time. And Ephesus was the center of a religion that worshipped a female god called Artemis, or a female god that the Romans called Diana. Uh, the original idea for this female goddess came out of Greek mythology about 300 years before. But the Ephesians, uh, some of them, in this big city, built this huge temple 
for the worship of this female uh, goddess, uh, Artemis. And the ruins can still go to the ruins uh, today. And many people who are traveling on these New Testament uh, journey trips go to Ephesus and observe some of these ruins. It uh, appears to be about four times this temple was the size of the Parthenon uh, in Athens, which was no small uh, facility. Uh, Acts chapter 19 uh, tells us uh, that the people of the city were engaged in a wide range of occult practices as well. So it was a very multi uh, cultural, uh, cross-cultural, and, and, and very religious community, very polytheistic type of uh, community. Well, the Apostle Paul traveled to this strategic city on his third trip through the region, and he began teaching first in the Jewish synagogue in the city. We can read all about it in Acts chapter 19. Uh, and it's typically the case, after a period of time, there was a bifurcation in the uh, group of people that attended the uh, Jewish synagogue there. Some responded to his teaching, and some became violently opposed to it. So those who responded pulled out, and he began teaching in this lecture hall in the city. Stayed there two years, and this a group of people that came together eventually formed a very thriving and dynamic Christian congregation. And as we read Acts 19, this particular group began having this profound influence in the city. It was a type of awakening. Uh, we don't see this everywhere in Paul's travels, but in the city of Ephesus, he had one of the most powerful and strategic and influential uh, impacts of all of his uh, life. And so this congregation, the group of people came together and started significantly affecting the city and then eventually the broader region. Now, Paul left the city eventually, and then he later wrote back to his friends there. And we, of course, have that letter in the New Testament and it's, the, it's often believed to be the best short summary of the teaching of the Apostle Paul that we have in the Bible. And so I want to just pick out a couple of verses because in a couple of these verses are contained this astonishing news, this information that is potentially so very life-changing. We read in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul makes this statement. First, he talks about bad news before good news. He tells the Ephesians, he says, you were once dead in your many sins. So it's very straightforward. He is saying at one point, these Ephesians were at one time in some sense dead even though they obviously were physically alive. The New Testament commonly refers to those who do not know and uh, do not seek the true and living God as spiritually dead. Uh, The Bible teaches, or the New Testament teaches, a person can be highly religious, but if they have not genuinely and accurately perceived the one true God, the Creator God revealed in the Bible and most clearly displayed through the life of Jesus Christ, then they are spiritually dead. 
And spiritual death is defined as a state of, of spiritual blindness and ignorance. It's a lack of capacity to accurately perceive God and a lack of desire uh, to even engage him in a meaningful uh, way. And, of course, uh, the teaching of Scripture is that when that's the case, uh, it leads to specific choices and a pattern of life that over a period of time, as that pattern of life evolves and develops, uh, leads eventually to a lifestyle of more obvious corruption and potentially a very significant uh, evil uh, choices. On, in contrast, of course, the picture of the Bible is that the, God's wisdom, the wisdom from above, when it is perceived and acknowledged and integrated into the life of those who become spiritually alive, it changes them. And as they follow, as you and I or whomever follows that wisdom, it leads to a life of greater wholesomeness, of strength, of stability, of relational health, uh, and all kinds of other uh, positive uh, results. But Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, and he said to these Ephesians, he said, you were formerly, you lived by the pattern of this world, and then some very uh, sobering words, he says, that is directed by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now working and those who disobey. Uh, Paul is obviously saying again here that his Ephesian friends uh, were earlier, they were part of a global culture that though religious in a very profound sense, was being orchestrated and manipulated by this evil, invisible, spiritual being that uh, he calls the prince of the power of the air. The word, the Greek word here is archon, and it simply means prince or uh, ruler or leader. Power of the air seems to be Paul, what, what does that mean? The prince of the power of the air Paul seems to be using language in, in his, you know, his frame of, or the terminology that he had available to him at the time that there is this evil spiritual being who exists in a parallel, an alternate dimension that's parallel. It's invisible, but it's very, very real. And of course, as we read the book of the Acts, and particularly as we read the life of Jesus, we see this this other parallel dimension breaking in very dramatically and clearly sometimes in the life of Jesus. And he has to confront the evidence and the manifestation of this parallel dimension. It becomes very clear uh, as we read through uh, the New Testament and, the, and the, particularly the four Gospels that Jesus is engaging this in ways that typically we do not uh, perceive or even understand. Uh, Paul is clearly, he's not using it in a metaphorical language here. Uh, the, the letter that he's writing is in no sense, he's describing reality as he perceives it, 
There's not a lot of poetry or metaphor in this uh, letter at all. He's clearly teaching the existence of this uh, spiritual being who has the capacity to directly influence the course of global affairs as well as individual uh, lives and destinies. Uh, Jesus used the same word, uh, archon, and Jesus also used an additional seven words uh, to describe different aspects of this personality, this evil spiritual being that he most certainly believed was a very real uh, and existing uh, personality. And Paul uh, mentions uh, in fleeting, we get fleeting glimpses of Paul's understanding of this through his letters. He says, for example, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verse 3, he says that uh, the God of this world, the archon, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. So they won't see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. So Paul's understanding, of course, his conversion, as we read about his conversion, he had a very dramatic and unusual conversion, but Christ burst through to him in some very real and dramatic ways, no doubt because he had a whole lot of suffering to do and he needed to be anchored in an experience that he absolutely could not forget uh, and that gave him some specific direction for the rest of the course of his life. Um, But he is saying here that there is something, there is a majesty about the person of Christ, the glory of Christ. There is something beyond description beautiful about the incarnation and the coming to this earth of the only begotten Son to display the love of God and to make available to all of those that he has chosen an eternal relationship with him. Eternal life is the result of the work of Christ. And so... Paul is saying here that this, the archon, uh, the prince of this, of the power of the air, the God of this world, has the capacity and is engaged in blinding and confusing and obfuscating uh, the facts about the person of Jesus Christ and and uh, make in blinding people to the the magnificence of it. And then Paul in chapter one and verse three he. Uh, Makes it personal. He's just been talking in kind of the third person up to this point. But then he says in, in verse 3, he says, We all formerly lived this way, following the passions and desires of our evil nature. We were born with an evil nature and were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now, these are some of the most stark and sobering words in the New Testament. Because uh, Paul, there, there can be no mistaking what he is teaching here and, and certainly what he believed. And he's saying this is true of all of us. 
Now, I tend to uh, have the kind of mind that's constantly probing for exceptions. You know, I read a portion of scriptures, and I, how does this work exactly? Because I know some people that this does not appear to apply so specifically to. I mean, of course, like you and me, uh, I know children uh, who have been reared in these wonderful, loving, warm Christian homes, and they have this beautiful mix of love and discipline and instruction and provision, and so they become health, healthy and wholesome young people, and then they grow into moral and strong and really wonderful people that we all respect and ultimately that, that uh, contribute in so many different ways in our culture and society. So how does this apply to them? Well, when we, we, we have to understand, you know, the scripture, Paul makes these uh, big statements. Of course, it's true of all people, but the, our understanding of that, I mean, the, this obviously, this is, uh, these young people who uh, have been surrounded by a environment and a climate of goodness and the love of Christ and righteousness, they are not ultimately, we're not ever going to see the expression of this evil nature and the way that we would somewhere else. Now, on the other hand, you take other people, and I've had some friends, I've had a number of friends who've I've gone to prison, at least uh, three or four that I immediately know of. College, a couple of college buddies. Uh, one of my brother-in-laws spent a great deal of time in prison. Uh, people, I know some people who, as, as you do, who grew up in an environment, and uh, the prisons are full of people that grew up very hard. They were wounded. They often were abused. Uh, they were. Uh, victimized in some very different ways and, of course, with lack of instruction. And so, therefore, their direction, their framework, their perception of life and the choices they make are ultimately going to reflect that. And that that means how critically important it is that we do the very best job that we can in raising our kids and coming together as a community to create the kind of environment so we're nurturing and helping develop young people into a place where they see the beauty of Christ and respond to him and then follow the truth. They live by the wisdom uh, from above. But Paul is saying that in some sense we all have an evil nature. Um, Intellectual fashions uh, change almost as quickly as clothing and hairstyles change. it is currently not very intellectually fashionable that, to believe that human beings have an evil nature. But two generations ago, uh, during the Second World War, generally speaking, the people would have thought that the current ideas, uh, our current ideas about human nature, were hopelessly, would, hopelessly naive. The Second World War, between 60 and 70 million people, were killed. Sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, specific individuals were killed, 2.5% of the world population, and that doesn't even remotely begin to affect all the casualties and all of the grief and the suffering and the loss and the waste of material resources. 
25 years earlier, just within the last 100 years, 25 years earlier, 37 million people died in the First World War. And neither of the, world, of the wars resulted in any change in the political or economic configuration of Europe or anywhere else in the world. Not substantially. What, what, if we read the scripture, we can begin seeing what is the root and the basis of the great suffering and the, sometimes the awful developments that we see on planet Earth. Paul has the answer. He says, there are, there is a spiritual dimension to life. There are some things that we do not understand, but we're given some insight uh, into glimpses of, of the answers in the scripture. And sometimes it's quite clear, but the teaching of scripture is that we have an evil nature that if it is not changed, that we will ultimately be the objects of God's just Righteousness and justice and judgment. And uh, most science fiction uh, always assumes that if we ever encounter an alien species, uh, they will be evil. Uh, But in an essay in his book, Christian Reflections, uh, C.S. Lewis has some fascinating uh, speculations about what might actually be the case. If we ever encounter in, in future uh, time some uh, other species, he says in that book, he says, I have no pleasure in looking forward to a meeting between humanity and any alien rational species. I observe how the white man has historically treated the black and how even among cultured men, the stronger have treated the weaker. If we encounter in the depth of space a race, however innocent and amiable, which is technologically weaker than ourselves, I do not doubt that the same revolting story will be repeated. We shall enslave, deceive, exploit, or exterminate. At the very least, we shall corrupt it with our vices and infect it with our diseases. We are not yet fit to visit other worlds. We have filled our own with massacre, torture, syphilis, famine, dust bowls, and all that is hideous to eye or ear. Must we go on to infect new realms? A few people with a knowledge of history uh, would seriously doubt that there is something desperately wrong uh, with the human race and, and if we're close observers of ourselves, of, of our own individual life. The good news, just the first insight of the good news. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, it says, But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, there is no other statement like those words in any religion of the world. 
Christianity is utterly distinct. It's been said that the religions of the world are man in search of God, and Christianity is God in search of man, of his people. God, rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. He came among us and he sets his grace upon those that he chooses. He illuminates them. He stimulates within them a desire to respond. He gives them capacity to understand. And then as they believe, they are made spiritually alive. And the scripture clearly teaches that if that, whomever that happens to, there will definitely be some sort of change. It's impossible for that type of spiritual transformation or experience to take place in the life of a person and there not be some sort of change, no matter who the person is. And he says, and he goes on, and he mentions a few other things that have happened to us through that. But then he says, he, he, he starts and then he points us out to the future. He says, in order that in the ages to come, he might reveal to us the riches of his grace in kindness towards us. Wow. Not only does he make us alive, according to this passage, he has done so because God's horizons are very distant. Of course, you know, we often we think about today, this week, this month, maybe periodically our lifespan. God is God. He's the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. Lots of intelligence and creativity and power there on board. And he we read in scripture about these unfolding eras Ages to come. And according to this passage, one of his key purposes in making us alive really has very little to do with this life. He's talking about the life to come, the ages to come. We will be the objects uh, of his unimpeded grace and blessing. Uh, And he will make that known to us, this great riches of his grace. That is good news. (laughs) That is really, really good news, is it not? (laughs) Um, And he says, for by grace uh, you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Can't be earned. Cannot get it through going to church every day the rest of your life or praying or giving or sacrificing your life or whatever that... A religious system, it is a gift that is given to those that he chooses to give it to and who respond uh, to that gift. And then he says, uh, finally, in, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, he delivered us from the authority or the kingdom of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Great news. When we understand and believe and we receive 
the gift of forgiveness and grace, we are made alive, and then we are transferred from this sphere under in which we are under the authority of this invisible evil archon, and we are placed into this new kingdom where God's provision and love and grace prevails. And uh, that is very, very good news. Insight number one, we have been delivered and given life. And there are all kinds of implications of that for daily life, for our perspective, for our relationships. We will unfold uh, those implications in weeks to come. But uh, the news, the first piece of good news this morning is that if you believe, uh, if you have responded to this marvelous invitation to come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, that we have been delivered and given life. And in a group this size, uh, there is quite possibly somebody who is not believed that you're in the process of discovery or exploration. But all everyone in this room who has experienced the reality of this passage would beseech you. We would beg you this morning to continue that process. And if you feel like you are at a place where you definitely want to receive Christ, you want to cross the threshold and believe we encourage you to come down this morning, and we'll have a, a short discussion with you and pray with you, Rick Lehman and Ralph and a number. I'll, I'll be down here. We'd be happy to have coffee with you if you'd like to do it elsewhere and ta- help you think this through, because this is a gift that you do not want to turn away from. We'll continue uh, our uh, study on the good news next week. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this astonishing information. I pray that in these coming weeks as we study more of this teaching, uh, help me and whomever else is engaged in, in, in trying to explain this to understand it ourselves, to be clear and to be moved by the information, and I pray that this would have some very meaningful influence in the life of everyone here because you gave it for a reason, and we know it has life-changing power, so I, I pray that we would experience a bit of that. And so we pray for our children, we pray for our teens, we pray for every family and capital community that you would... Allow us to move forward into this grace that you describe and become the people, be more the people that you want us to be. In Christ's name.